One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of the West End. Today's episode is about Marion Lee Smith, a single mother struggling alone to cope with the daily demands of Derek her disabled and brain-damaged son. And as frustrated and exasperated as Marion would often be, her death would come about, not by exhaustion, but by the hand of her own son. Murder Mile is researched using the original police investigation files. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatisation of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I'm your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 43, Marion Lee Smith, The Rich Mum, The Deaf Son, and The Poultry Sum. Today, I'm standing on George Street, W1, and like most places on Murder Mile, it may sound familiar, because we've already been here before, as we're just one road south of the first failed assassination of former Iraqi Prime Minister Abd al-Razak Saeed al-Naif, one road north of the badly bungled abortion of Helen Mary Pickwood, one square west of the Blackout Ripper's first victim, Evelyn Hamilton, and three blocks south of the terrorist tube bombing at Edgware Road, coming soon to Murder Mile. In front of me is Bryanston Court at 137 George Street, a seven-storey mansion house covering half a square block with brown brick walls, black wrought iron railings, Art Deco lamps, and with four huge Doric columns in chalkstone on either side of the black wooden door, it looks very much like an old bank. Like much of Marleybone, George Street is rather grand, as being named after the most infamous of Britain's mentally unwell monarchs, as it's here that the unfairly dubbed Mad King George III ranted, raved, and recuperated from the debilitating blood disorder known as Pephoria. Although this sleepy side street is chock full of five-star hotels, embassies, 
galleries and lines of posh cars, like a very literal willy-measuring contest. Oddly, for a major metropolitan city, there's no people. It's lifeless, joyless, colourless. Like a potato waffle, coated with caviar. Or like that very white, kind of 1980s poodle poop. Only sprinkled with lots of pearls. The only life on George Street are those uptight twats in tweed suits who drive their Bentleys at half the speed of a bunged-up slug's bowel movement, and those mummified corpses in mink coats who stink of mothballs and gin and walk a 5,000-pound fluffy rat on a very posh piece of string. And although, in Bryanston Court, the three-bedroom department of Wallace Simpson recently sold for £5.35 million. It was also here, on the night of Wednesday the 30th of December 1942, in flat 112, that a devoted and well-off mother called Marion Lee Smith was murdered by her own son over the paltry sum of just two pounds. Life was idyllic for Marion Lee Smith. Raised as a well-mannered, educated and devoutly religious lady from a wealthy and upstanding family, although a native of Chicago, having married Norman, an executive on the Canadian Pacific Railway, together Marion and her husband would travel the world. By 1920, being birthed in the bustling city of Shanghai in China, as a major international trade port and one of the East's most important financial centres, Shanghai was in its golden age. And being bathed by bright-coloured lights, stunned by the hectic buzz of the city, and knocked out by the sweet sizzling smell of steamed crab, beggar's chicken and shredded duck dumplings, Marion was in her element. And as a 40-year-old globetrotter from a wealthy family, with no commitments or responsibilities, as money was no object, Marion could literally buy anything except happiness. As a hard-working, but always exhausted executive, Norman was rarely home. And on the odd occasion he was, the faint cracks in their fractured relationship would show. Often they'd argue, always they'd fight. And so, with fate being so fickle, this was possibly the worst time to have a baby. But on the 21st of August 1922, Marion gave birth to a boy, and she named him Derek. Derek was, and would always be, their only child. And as a happy, normal and healthy boy, raised to two loving parents in a wealthy family, Although he was an accident, Derek was adored. And with his doting mother, smothering her beloved son with endless toys, good food, soft sheets, and a nursemaid at his beck and call, 
Even as a baby, Derek had a better life than most. But then, even in a truly idyllic setting, sometimes accidents do happen. It was a momentary lapse in concentration, as Emma, the family's diligent nursemaid, was distracted for little more than a few seconds. With Derek being a restless two-year-old, unable to sit still, desperate to stand, and struggling to peep out of his pram, as Emma looked away, the adventurous tot crawled over the pram's canvas side, and with no sense of distance or danger, he slipped and fell. The thud was heavy, the cobbles were hard, his head bled. And although motionless, as a pained wail burst from his bloodied lips, which cut the chaotic Shanghai streets to silence, and reassured Amma that the boy was still breathing, Derek was rushed to hospital, having landed on his head. He was lucky, the doctors said, as with no broken bones, only a superficial cut and a few bruises, being given a pill for the pain and a plaster, Marion took her son home and thought nothing more of it. But Derek had been damaged. It started with a stutter, a simple tripping of the tongue over some troublesome words. Then he became unnaturally clingy, oddly silent, and always cried, as if he was in pain. And as he retreated into his own little world, with his hearing slowly fading, by the age of twelve, Derek was totally deaf. With Amma sacked, Marion became Derek's full-time carer, and with his deafness being manageable, having invested in a hearing aid and lip-reading lessons, Marion was coping. But somewhere, deep inside Derek's head, something else had broken. Having relocated to London, limited their social life, and put their globe-trotting days behind them, Derek's demands had placed great strain on his parents' relationship. And although they stayed in touch, Marion and Norman had split. Part funded by her family, Marion moved with her son into flat 112 on the sixth floor of Bryanston Court, a modern, well-furnished, two-bedroom apartment. And as a little family, stuck together in a tiny West End flat, with no one for company but each other, although Marion and Derek were mother and son, to those who knew them, they seemed like an odd mix. 61-year-old Marion was a pale, thin and hollow version of her former self. And although she was fastidiously neat and elegantly dressed, lacking any smile or sparkle, it seemed as if every day a little piece of her soul had drained away. And as a single woman struggling alone 
with a boy whose injuries she blamed on herself. Marion was the epitome of exasperation. Whereas Derek always seemed awkward in his own skin, like a 20-year-old man trapped in a 70-year-old's body. As with a messy mop of black hair perched above his elongated face, a dark crumpled suit which clung to his thin weedy frame, a set of horn-rimmed glasses with lenses like Coke bottle bottoms, so thick they magnified his tiny eyes to the size of saucers. And as his little legs walked with oversized strides, being forced to cart about the clunking great hearing aid with its bulky battery in a carry case. Although he was deaf, delicate, and socially awkward, he was eager for freedom. Not a lot, just some. But with Marion always fussing, huffing, and tutting, as a woman racked with guilt over her broken boy, Believing she was a good mum, she had encased him in a cocoon. A cocoon that Derek would never escape, even after he had stabbed his mother to death. In 1942, three weeks before Christmas, Marion was at her wit's end. Not from the strict rationing with the country's food stocks in short supply, the lack of clean water as pipes burst, limiting each flat to just two buckets a day, or the barrage of Nazi bombers which night after night rained down death from the skies. But by loving him so much, she had nothing left to give. Every night, they'd fight. And although their little spats were never hurtful, spiteful, or physical, the thin walls of their tiny flat echoed with the sharp sounds of screaming and sobbing, as an exasperated mother and her frustrated son clashed. When Derek was a little boy, although they'd argue, Marion would always win. As being a strong-willed woman, and more importantly, his mother, with just a finger, a look, or even a tut, she could easily override the unruly demands of such a small boy with a slow brain and a stutter. But now, he was a man. Determined that his disability should never hold him back, Derek was educated at some of Britain's best private schools. But being described by his tutors as distant, erratic, distracted, and intellectually deficient. For the third time in the last six months, Derek had dropped out of education. And so it went on. He couldn't work, he couldn't earn, and he couldn't learn. Marion was exasperated, exhausted, and alone. She had tried everything, and everything had failed. Even his modest weekly allowance of 12 shillings, which, although not much, was enough to give him some independence. But whereas once, as a boy, he'd spend the lot on sweets, now, as a man, 
he'd blow the lot on booze, making him deaf, delicate, socially awkward, and also drunk. To Marion, as a devout teetotaler, this was a step too far, and fearing she had lost control, she did the only thing that she could do. She stopped his allowance. And for the last time, the cocoon was shut. And that's how it all began. Not as a bitter battle over inheritance. Not as a long-standing feud over love. And not owing to a slow descent into drugs and drink. And although it is said that Derek had been brain-damaged, he didn't suffer with headaches, visions, and never heard voices. He was never violent, cruel, or committed a crime. He was just quiet. It all began over a simple spat over a few pennies between a loving mother and her slightly unruly son. As she tried to protect him from harm, as he tested the boundaries of his newfound freedom. It was an argument which every parent has with their child every day. Three days before Christmas, like a marvel to the art of multitasking, Marion managed to find the time to establish the St George's Club at 62 Great Cumberland Place, a social club for members of the armed forces and although it kept her busy, it also provided her son with a good job, a regular income, and allowed her to keep him busy and close. It seemed like the perfect solution to a small problem. But it wasn't. Wednesday the 30th of December 1942 was Marion's last day alive. And yet, like most parents, her morning had begun like any other. As being late for work, she impatiently banged on the bathroom door. It started as a simple squabble over the usual. Her son, having hogged the hot water, made a mess and failed to flush. And that's all. But somewhere in their war of words... Marion hit a nerve, as having merely mentioned that the club's nightly takings were a little short, their sparks erupted into a scuffle, and in a truly rare moment of anger, which shocked them both, Derek struck his mother and stormed out. She wasn't injured, cut or bruised. If anything, she was just disappointed. Between 9pm and 11pm, at the New Inn public house at nearby Marble Arch, Derek sat alone, fuming, as he necked back four pints of mild ale. Which was odd, as he hadn't been paid. At a few minutes after 11pm, with the club closed for the night, Marion returned home. With the blackout blinds drawn, and every light off, the flat was inky black. 
And although just hours earlier, it was here that Marion and Derek had fought, its silence was eerie and there was no sign of her son. As was her usual routine, Marion readied herself for bed. On the sofa, she dumped her gloves, purse and shopping bags. As it was cold, she slipped on a bathrobe, a nightie, a woolen vest, a set of booties and a scarf. To distract her mind, she sat at the kitchen table, her spectacles on, doing the crossword. And then, with slumber looming, she popped the kettle on the hob and beside it, a hot water bottle. At 11.20pm, Derek returned. And although their tiny flat was filled with a tense trepidation, no words were said, no tuts were uttered, and no looks were exchanged. So seeing that his mother was already dressed and ready for bed, Derek went straight to his bedroom and popped on his pyjamas. On his bed lay her brown attaché case. In it was the club's cash boxes, which she'd bring home every night. But it wasn't what it was, what it contained, or where it had been placed which made Derek smile, but what it meant. As still being trusted to count the club's takings, this wasn't just her money. It was a symbol of trust, a reconciliation, and one last chance. With a pad and pencil, Derek set about counting the cash. It didn't take him long, not just because he was eager to please his mum, whose pale drained face beamed with pride from the doorway. But with the club being new, the take-ins were only small and amounted to the paltry sum of just two pounds. And yet, as she slowly sidled up to thank her son, she smelled the stale stench of booze on his breath. And that's all it took. An accusatory sniff, an exasperated sigh, and a withering look. The disappointed eye-roll of a frustrated mother, whose trust had been lost. But it was enough to make Derek snap. With a vice-like grip, the loose pale skin of her wrinkled neck folded over his forefingers as both of his hands squeezed her throat tightly. His thumbs embedded into her windpipe. So deep, they cut off her air and her screams. As standing over her, with wide staring eyes, her baby boy loomed large. And as her swollen tongue protruded from her pulsating purple face, with her blue lips agog, like her last ever words were trapped in the midst of a silent scream, as her whole world slowly went black, Derek let go. Marion gasped for air, gulping down great mouthfuls of oxygen as her pallid complexion returned. In court, 
Derek described this as a moment of temporary insanity. He just wanted to frighten his mother, and frightened she was. But as he stormed out of the bedroom, he knew he'd done wrong. Having taken the wailing kettle off the hob, Derek stood in the kitchen, his breathing staggered, his eyes flooded with tears. As being both terrified and ashamed of the truly awful act which he had done to his mum with his own hands, hearing her sobs echo from the bedroom. To steady his nerves, Derek decided to fix himself a lime juice and ginger ale. And as he opened the cutlery drawer, his quivering hand hovering near the bottle opener, behind him, in the bedroom, he heard the distant crinkle of notes and the faint clink of coins being counted as his mother checked the cash box for theft. And in that instant, Derek went from shame to rage. With her back to the bedroom door, she didn't hear her son return. With her head facing the bed, she couldn't see him rush up behind her. And being so focused on counting the club's nightly takings, Marion didn't see that in the hand of her baby boy, he held a four-inch black-handled kitchen knife. The first thing she felt was a hard thump, like she'd been punched in the back, the force having shoved her forward into the bed and feeling a warm trickle as blood ran down her spine. As she turned and saw her own knife, last used to slice spuds, sunk deep into her back, right up to the handle, as her left lung slowly pulled with blood, Derek retracted the blade and stabbed his mother again. The second stab wound sliced one inch deep into the purple skin of her bruised neck, severing her larynx. And with the pleural cavity of her left lung now collapsed, being unable to breathe as she choked on her own blood, Marion slipped into shock, frozen in fear. As slowly, she began to bleed to death. And as she turned... To look into the eyes of her killer, the last sight Marion saw was her own son, as with his hand held high, gripping a bloodied knife, with every ounce of hate, spite and hurt, he stabbed her once in the face, slicing open her lower lip and chin right down to the jawbone. Moments later, 61-year-old Marion Lee Smith mother of Derek was dead at 9.15am the next morning Marion's body was discovered by their housekeeper the crime scene wasn't difficult for Detective Inspector Clare to deduce as with one dead body an empty cash box a locked door her son missing his fingerprints on the knife and his blood-splattered pyjamas soaking in the sink, having been seen by the night porter 
walking out of Bryanston Court barely moments after her screams had died. With Derek as the police's only suspect, his description was issued to all stations. With two pounds in his pocket, Derek finally got the freedom he had dreamed of. But with those few stolen notes, adding up to little more than £90 today. By 6.30pm, being broke, sober and totally distraught, he handed himself in to the police, stating in a mumbled stutter, the only thing I can say at my trial is I am guilty. Except he didn't. On the 16th of March 1943, in a two-day trial at the Old Bailey, a tearful Derek pleaded not guilty to murder, but guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. And with neither the defence nor the prosecution protesting those findings, with two doctors having confirmed that Derek had a psychopathic personality disorder, an erratic heart rate and abnormal brain waves, consistent with an undiagnosed brain injury when he fell from a pram, age two. The jury retired for just one hour and 40 minutes before they returned with the unanimous verdict of guilty but insane. In a statement spoken by his solicitor, Derek said, I'm very sorry I did this awful thing. I have done the greatest of harm by disposing of my best friend in life. Derek was sentenced to be detained at His Majesty's pleasure, which he served at Broadmoor Psychiatric Prison. And although the protective cocoon of his loving mother was created to shield her deaf, delicate and socially awkward son from danger, for the sake of a paltry sum, this one night of freedom had left Marion dead and Derek trapped inside a very different kind of prison forever. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Don't forget, if you're a murky miler, to stay tuned for extra goodies after the break. A big thank you goes out this week, not just to my regular listeners and new listeners, but also my Patreon supporters, who this week are Mark Williams and Alison Lee. A big thank you, Mark and Alison. Um, I'm donating to both of you one of my livers. Uh, so it's up to you what you want to do with it. Either you can sell it, give it to a donor, grill it, fry it, saute it, or given that it's only 10% blood, but at least 90% Jack Daniels. If I was you, I'd drink it. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well.
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello! Mucky Milers! Hello, Murky Milers. Welcome to Extra Mile. How are you doing? Are you all well? You having a nice day? Hope you are. Obviously, I can't hear you reply back to me, but I'm sure you are. If not, if you are having a nice day, just say, just say right now, say, yes, I'm having a nice day. Or turn to the person next to you and say to them, are you having a nice day? That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Obviously, if we all talk to each other more, life would be so much better. But when you turn to a stranger anywhere now, they think you're a weirdo. Uh, uh, so um, this is Extra Mile. Uh, this is the uh, unscripted, unedited uh, part of the show where we talk about the case that has just happened. Uh, I fill you in with extra details. There's no sound effects. There's no music. There's no blah, 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 blah. It's basically just me waffling. It's full of mistakes. Uh, so I'll trip over my tongue a couple of times, but it doesn't get edited out. This stays exactly as it... Oh, I burped. That would get edited out. I burped. That stays in. Um, so it's not compulsory. If you're new to Extra Mile, you don't need to listen to this, but uh, a lot of people do enjoy it. And I enjoy it as well because it's, it's therapeutic. After the hard work that goes into the first part, which takes months to research and 60 to 70 hours a week to write or longer as this episode took, uh, um, Extra Mile takes all it takes is as long as it takes for me to record it, which is great. Uh, it's quite therapeutic, actually. So that was a story of uh, Marion Scott Lee Smith and her son, Derek Thayer Lee Smith. Um, obviously, their, their little flat was just around the corner of uh, from Montague Square, where the first victim of the Blackout Ripper was murdered. And uh, just around the corner from Maison Lyonnaise as well, where the Blackout Ripper picked up his first victim that we reckon. Um, and where Helen Mary Pickwood and the, the bungled abortion with uh, Captain Tickle was as well. So these are all in kind of um, Marleybone area, which is just west of Soho. So this is in one of our other square miles. Obviously, we've got a few square miles now because there's lots of murders in Soho, but I want to kind of jazz it up a bit. I don't want us to get stuck in the same streets too often. So we've now got, what have we got? We've got 
Soho Murder Mile. We've uh, we got Fitzrovia, which includes one of the Blackout Rippers victims, uh, um, the uh, Swedish lady, the student who was murdered. Uh, what was her name? Martin Vik Magnusson. So I knew Magnusson was in there somewhere. Uh, and the Charlotte Street robbery, and there'll be some more as well. Um, and obviously, sorry, I'm keeping an eye out because I've got the kettle on. I'm making a cup of tea. <laughs> I'm watching the kettle very closely. Uh, and obviously, we've got Marlebone, which also includes Edgware Road area. Kettle's about to go. I'm disappearing. I'm getting... There you go. i got one of those old kettles where you put it on the gas hob and then it screams at you. There we go. Cup of tea. Obviously, because I live on a boat, I don't have a fridge. So uh, I haven't got proper milk, so I have to have powdered milk. I know, a bit yucky, uh, but there we go. Milk, two sugars, and a tea. And I'm treating myself with a little cake as well, because I feel like I, I need it this morning. Because this was an early start. This was not, normally I start recording at oh, about 7 a.m. Um, I couldn't sleep last night, so I got up at four. So this is, uh, it's not quite dawn yet. So I probably sound a bit, either, I probably sound weird on this podcast, but uh, yeah, I'm either tired or tired or lacking sleep. So yeah, uh, Motor Mile's what we've got. We've got Soho, we've got Fitzrovia, we've got uh, Marleybone, which covers Paddington area and Edgware Road. Uh, and I think ne- as of next week, I will be throwing in Covent Garden as well, because it's quite a good hub of information and stories. Do you know, I've got a very sad story next week, but there's also, if you've heard of Burke and Hare, who obviously the, the uh, Scottish gentleman, uh, not originally from Edinburgh, but they mostly based out of Edinburgh, who stole corpses to sell for medical research and then started committing murders to sell off even more corpses. Um, Covent Garden had its own version of them who have basically gone, been hidden. Uh, so I'm going to uh, include Covent Garden now so we can include those. There's also a vague, interesting murder about a guy who tries to commit a robbery and accidentally shoots himself in the face. <sighs> Happy days. Uh, and we've got another one as well. There's there's a famous murder in Covent Garden which all the tourists, uh, the the uh, tour guides go on about, but it's so boring and the only reason they do it is because he's this guy's meant to be famous he was like the brad pitt of his day and it's just it's just a, such a boring murder so i'm going to include that one so i can take the piss ha 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 uh so <laughs> let's dive let's dive in uh, i mean for me there's no such thing as boring murders what i do try as you know what i try to do with with murder mile is not is not Go into all these sensational murders. There's 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 too many documentaries out there where people go, oh, there was a man and he kidnapped all of these women and he kept them in 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 a cellar which he converted into a torture dungeon and he cut their heads off and it's like oh that's easy to write. Anyone could write that. You don't need to have any skills to sit down and talk about a murder in which someone cut someone's head off. The more sensational the details, the less work less work you have to do. Whereas what I'm trying to do with Murder Mile is show you, and and this this episode is a prime example that you can have murders which are very unsensational, but if you dive down into them, they you know they they're very normal. Is it, they, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that 
people are kind of distancing themselves by focusing on these big sensational cases. So the cases where they go like the toolbox murderer, the toolbox killer and things like that. When it's a serial killer, it's sensational and you're distancing yourself away from it because the chance of you meeting a serial killer is remote. Whereas this story here, this is like most murders. And this is why most people ignore them because they think, oh, it's boring. It's a domestic. But this is exactly what most murders are. It's it's mother and son. It's father and daughter. It's husband and wife. It's you're more likely to be murdered by someone, you know. And that's what I'm trying to get across with these episodes is by taking a very normal murder, nothing too sensational and just going, oh, my God, look, it's it's family. It's friends. It's it's not you're not going to you're not going to have someone walk up to you in, off the street who you've never met before and just decide they want to kill you if you're going to be killed you're going to be killed by someone you know that's what i'm trying to get with these episodes so they're deliberately not sensational i will throw in some sensational ones just for the hell of it um but i what i really want to get across is the idea that it isn't very normal murders i think they're more interesting and also it gives me a reason to dive deep into the characters to find out where they come from and what they're about so oh cup of tea in front of me very nice and a bakewell tart which i i will munch into shortly so i got distracted looking at bakewell tart it's a nice it's a cupcake version so it's the size of a cupcake if you don't know what a bakewell tart is it's uh, this one is the size of a cupcake it's round uh, it's got short crust pastry on the outside so it's quite hard but when you bite into it it goes all crumbly and on the top is icing with a little glacé cherry and when you go through that you got next which is the franzi pan i love franzi pan i know it's so sweet but i love franzi pan franzi pan so it's like uh, it's like a mixture of sponge and marzipan so it's a very sweet um sponge and then underneath is kind of uh, it's either a strawberry or raspberry jam God, that, oh God, I love Bakewell tarts. Oh, God. I would probably have my last meal as Bakewell tart. No, Chinese food. Love Chinese food. Uh, <laughs> uh, cheese on toast. Good cheese on toast with uh, some Worcester sauce on top and a Bakewell tart. And, of course, a cup of tea. Right. Oh, dear, that was good. Right, extra mile. A um, couple of things in the story that I uh, left out because obviously we don't have time to put everything in and it slows down the story so quite a lot of stuff I leave for this section which is good so for for those of you who are patient have waited to the end this is the extra stuff that you're waiting for <gasps> exciting not just me talking about bakewell tarts and tea um, so motive for the theft now we had mentioned in there that Derek was because uh, he'd been doing a bit of typing he'd also been doing a uh, formerly been doing a bookkeeping course uh, one of one of the many courses he tried uh, but he couldn't really stay focused when he was at um, education his mum had paid a lot his mum and her family had actually paid even though he hadn't got any qualifications his family had actually paid for him to go to Trinity College in Cambridge which is one of the you know going to Cambridge University you have to have fantastic grades to get in there thick people like me couldn't get in I had to go to a shitty university in South Wales uh, uh, but um yeah no you could, so uh, they actually paid I mean it was serious money and they paid good money because he, he he at that point he was interested in geography so they paid for him to go on the, uh, to do a degree in geography uh he lasted uh just under eight months 
he didn't last very long so so he'd done that he'd done a typing course at Pittman that I mentioned he'd also done a bookkeeping course to be an accountant he'd given up on that but his mum still believed in him and she was like because she's running the St George's Club she, she said you can do the book work now looking at the details she seems like a clever lady. It's highly likely that she'd already done the book work herself, but she was giving her, her boy something to do to keep him occupied and to make him feel good and kind of uh, that he had value because he was being rejected by everyone because he, he was, well, as everyone said, he was slow-witted. Um, so um, obviously there was an argument over a loss of funds. Um, it's still unsure whether he'd... It looks like he'd taken some cash out of the cash box... But also there seemed to be a problem with uh, people cashing in paychecks. Now, in those days, uh, especially armed forces, because it was a government check, basically, in those days, if you were paid by check, which most people were because there wasn't bank transfer, you'd either get paid in, in, in a, uh, uh, a little wallet with money in it. I remember those days. Or being paid by check you could basically go anywhere you could go to a post office or you could go to most bars and say this is my work check can you cash that and they'll go yeah fine it's uh, you know it's four pounds i can cash that i can give you the cash back because it's government covered you know it's 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 all legal but there did seem to be a problem with um checks that weren't valid so uh whether he'd cashed some invalid checks or whether someone else had any just hadn't checked we don't know but there, were, there was a bit of a motive there for um, so it wasn't just him stealing two pounds. There was other money that had gone myth missing as well. Uh, I mentioned in there earlier on that her body had been found. Marion's body had been found. Um, now, because Marion had deliberately, uh, she decided that when Emma had uh, looked away and baby Derek had fallen on the floor and injured his head, after that moment she said she was never going to let anyone ever look after her children ever again she was going to become a full-time mum which she did so she sacked Emma uh, but she did have domestic help after that so she had a lady who was a housekeeper called Rose Hambly um, now we get a lot of the details about the original argument that happened in the bathroom so do you know when that uh, I said that it was the morning of the morning uh, when uh, Marion was murdered so uh, about 16 hours prior she was trying to get in the bathroom. Derek was in the bathroom having a bit of a bath. Uh, she couldn't get in. There was a bit of domestic. They had a bit of a falling out over money. All of this we know because Rose was there at the time. She turned up that morning to do the cleaning. Uh, she would prepare breakfast for Marion and her son. But neither of them had breakfast that morning. Uh, so on New Year's Eve, which is the 31st of December 1942 at 9.15pm, Rose Hambly, uh, she had her own key. She came into flat 112. Uh, which was Marion and Derek's. Uh, she took off a coat. Uh, she hung it by the spare bedroom, which was uh, Derek's bedroom. Everything was in darkness. The blinds were still drawn. The breakfast tray was still out. Nothing had been touched. Obviously, Marion's uh, uh, newspaper and glasses were still on the table. The hot water bottle was out. We still—that's why we know all of these details because she hadn't touched anything. Uh, she looked in Marion's bedroom, and the bed had not been slept in. Um, and obviously the kettle was ready to put in, but by then it had, got, it had gone cold. The flat was entirely silent. <coughs> uh, she walked into Marion's bedroom, saw that her undergarments were on the chair, and that, uh, like her gloves and handbag were on the couch, and the shopping bags and all that. Um, and then she noticed that there was a light on in Derek's bedroom, and she opened up the door, and then she saw Marion's body on the floor, and immediately ran out. 
uh, and informed the hall porter, who in turn called the police. So that's how we know. So if she hadn't turned up that that morning to do her duties, we probably wouldn't we probably wouldn't have known that um, she was dead until Derek had gone to the police. Um, so uh, the detective in charge of this case case was I mentioned was. Uh, Burps again. Whoa. Was uh, Detective uh, Detective Inspector Leonard Clare, actually Divisional Detective Inspector Leonard Clare, who's a name you'll recognise from the Blackout Ripper. Because um, we're dealing in the same area and there's uh, around the same period of time, there's a lot of detectives who are, are doing the same. So he'd, he'd wrapped up the Blackout Ripper case like barely eight months before this. So this was probably... Uh, bit of relaxation for him although there was a lot of murders in between this as well so he arrived that morning he arrived at flat 112 he saw marion on the floor lying on the back um blood all over the room copper coins on the bed there are two cash boxes on the bed one which was open one was closed um one of them hadn't they hadn't got the key for it that's why they couldn't open it so derek there was another cash box but derek couldn't get into it and the and the attache case was open as well uh, Marion was wearing her dressing gown uh, <coughs> and a nightdress and booties underneath. And underneath her left shoulder was what they called the black peeling knife. So it was a small knife that she was stabbed with. It was about four inches long. She'd used it for like uh, peeling uh, vegetables or potatoes as it was actually the night before. Uh, there's a large quantity of blood on the floor. Uh, and then when he went into the study, he found Derek's pyjamas stained with blood, which was in the wash basin, and uh, spots of blood around the sink as well. So he knew straight away that who had done it, what had happened. It, it was one of those crime scenes that he just walked in and just went, yep, know exactly what it was. Uh, so Derek's identity had been sent out to all the police stations. Uh, where is the why have I put that here this is I've taken something out that's weird I was gonna okay well that's fine I can memorize it um so Derek was actually going down the uh the Admiralty um on Whitehall so basically he was walking down the the route between where 10 Downing Street is and the housing of Houses of Parliament is. So he was in the centre of town. He'd gone down Trafalgar Square and he's walking down uh, down Whitehall in that area. He was outside the Admiralty. There was obviously uh, some police stationed there. He was trying to find his way to New Scotland, New Scotland Yard, which is not too far away. It's probably about a quarter of a mile away. Uh, he wanted to give himself up. He went to a, uh, a, a constable who was there and said, uh, can you tell me the way to New Scotland Yard? Um, Derek's details had already been given to all the police. Um, the policeman shined the torch into his face. Derek was easy to spot. He was short. He was awkward. He had big, thick glasses. He was wearing a hearing aid with a carry case on his hip. He was not difficult to identify at all. Policeman basically said, can I see your ID? Everyone has to carry ID. It was wartime. Derek showed his ID that said Derek Thayer Smith. And the policeman basically just said, I'm, I'm going to have to take you in uh, over the um, the death of your mother. And that was it. He was taken straight to Paddington Police Station. Uh, so at 7.30pm that night, he was, yeah, he was questioned at Scotland Yard first. Then he went to Paddington Police Station. He confirmed his name. Uh, asked for his whereabouts that night. He said he had a night out, but said 
he'd had a couple of pints. I took I took this out of the story because it just throws everything off. But he said uh, after he'd finished work, he had a night out. He had a couple of pints. He had four pints of ale, and then he had a complete blackout. He doesn't remember anything after that, so he doesn't remember the murder at all. But he knew he was guilty, and he even said to Detective Inspector Clare, I suppose this means the rope. So, obviously, because he committed murder, he knew that he was probably going to be executed. Although he wasn't going to be executed for that, because he firstly... Uh, oh, no, he did, because it was uh, murder in furtherance of a robbery. So even though he hadn't shot his mother, yeah, no, he could have been... If he hadn't have been found insane, he would have been executed. Uh, I'm sure he would have been Albert Pierpoint's one of his next ones uh interesting note here he did say um Derek did say I suppose this means the rope don't think this is because of what's in her will I'll go into that in a bit um so um he was remanded in custody uh Derek was he was sent to Brixton prison while he was on remand uh on New Year's Day 1943 and he was examined by Dr Hugh Grierson who we've heard of many times before um George Pickering case he was the medical officer who dealt with George Pickering which is kind of interesting we've got we've now had two murderers in the same series who have both been deaf George Pickering who was deaf owing to uh was it it was meningitis in the, in the early age and then this was a, a fall deafness due to a fall uh so Hugh Grierson was a medical officer at Brixton prison he observed Derek in hospital uh did a quick family history and found that there was a prior history of insanity in the family um he had one paternal aunt who was an epileptic uh and who was a high functioning this is his words a high functioning mental defective uh so that's on his father's side and then he had a maternal aunt on his mother's side uh, i'm pointing that out just in case you don't know what paternal or maternal means uh, just in case. Uh, and his maternal aunt was declared insane and died in an asylum at Wauwatosa. See, that's why I haven't put it in the script. Wauwatosa Sanatorium in Wisconsin. Uh, her name was Miss Mabel Key and she suffered from delusions and hallucinations. Um... And she was obsessed with the idea of relatives stealing her money and she was devoutly religious. Not that I'm saying that they're connected, but that's what they're saying in there. Um, so I mentioned briefly at the end that the uh, two doctors had said that he had uh, psychopathic tendencies and they'd done uh, tests on him. So kind of his heart rate and his brain EKG. So these two doctors were Captain Leo Rao and Dr. J.D.N. Hill. J.D.N. Hill. He must really hate his first names to have done that. Uh, they stated that because Derek had low blood, low blood sugar, uh, this meant that he had no control over his impulse to commit certain actions. But agreed that he knew what he was doing when he murdered his mother uh, and that he knew that it was wrong. So they took him to Sutton Hospital, which is in South London, uh, to be examined by uh, doctors. Uh, they stated that he suffered from from hypoglycemia, uh, obviously a shortage of blood sugar, which impaired his ability to control his actions. Uh, Doctor Hill conducted a series of tests using an electro <coughs> an electroencephalo an electroencephalogram. 
to test his brain wave brain waves yeah, i can barely say these words and um and they proved that he had abnormal brain waves and also brain spasms as well so obviously this was caused by damage when he landed on his head as a child but obviously those doctors back in the 1920s they didn't see any of this at all they were just like he's just got a bit of a cut but obviously there must have been swelling in the brain it must have caused contusions and uh injuries to his brain uh, in another test dr hill actually gave uh, derek four pints of beer four pints of mild ale as if uh, the stuff that he had drink drink drank that he said he drank and then retested his blood sugar level um and they did another test as well and denied him breakfast just to see if there was the same balance as well and it, it came across as roughly the same they said they said that he had a severe drop in blood sugar and he was unable to really judge kind of right and wrong also he was drunk as well um they they did say they had said in here that he'd, he'd only really drank twice in his life he obviously didn't really have a lot of friends so um he didn't really um do a lot of drinking except by himself and to be honest he wasn't a big drinker he was it was it was antisocial. it was kind of when as and when he could escape from his mum really um in marion's will um when she died uh there was five thousand four hundred and eighty two pounds which when you consider that um when you consider that a, uh about a pound was worth about thirty pounds today that's a lot so uh you're gonna have to times that by thirty but that's that's a big old chunk of money um so that was left in their will uh unfortunately it didn't go to derek uh because because he was declared insane and was committed uh, at his majesty's pleasure to be detained in broadmoor psychiatric prison uh he never got any of this uh this went to marion's husband instead because because even though they were separated they were still married um i did a bit of a um there was nothing in the police file about what happened to derek afterwards but interestingly so he was detained at his majesty's pleasure which means basically means it's a life sentence but up until the point that uh they say his majesty's pleasure but the king really doesn't give a shit about it it's basically doctors really doctors make a decision how long he needs to stay there um derek actually uh left broadmoor so he was in there in 1943 I haven't been able to find details about when he was released, but he was released and he married in 1969. So he was, what was that? He would have been 47 by that point. Good bit of math by me then. He married a lady called Amy Derrick. Uh, they were married in the borough of Haringey, which is northwest, northeast London. Uh, but I have not been able to find a date of death. So, either... He went overseas uh, because he was born in China. Therefore, he probably had dual citizenship or given the fact that his both his parents were American. He may have moved to America, which means he may have died over there. But I haven't been able to find that. Or if he is still in this country and he's still alive, uh, he would be uh, 96 years old. All of which are possible. So we don't know. So unfortunately, uh, what happened to Derek? I don't know. I'd love to know. I just don't know. Uh, he's kind of gone missing. Um, so, um, 
I thought I'd throw this in as well. This was going to go into the story, but I decided to take it out just because I wanted this to be about. Sorry, I'm having a stretch. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I'm not making you yawn. Um, I took this out of the story just because I wanted to make it Marion's story, and I just did some of these things kind of uh, slowed down the story a bit. So, <clears throat> but you often hear people going on about. Uh, the good old days of uh, the war, wartime, when it was the good old days, and all the neighbours looked out for each other. Um, now, I know we always say this is rose-tinted spectacles, but it is. It's like the amount of murder cases that I look through, and I look at people's witness statements, and I just think it's absolute bollocks, all of this. All of this, oh, do you know, we all looked out for each other. And I'll give you good examples here. So, um... We've got a statement here by a lady called Kate Holman, who lived in 116 Bryanston Court. So uh, she was in the she lived in the flat immediately above, and she said at 11:40 p.m. on the 30th of December 1942, she was in bed and she was woken by a terrible short a short terrible scream, followed by a long agonising scream, not scream, whatever that is, and then shortly after that she heard uh, the sounds of footsteps running away. Okay. And at the same time, uh, there were other people in the flats who uh, heard the screams as well, including Major Don, uh, who uh, was a retired major who used to work in the army. He was him and his wife were one floor below and heard the screams as well. He armed himself with his service revolver. He went outside onto the floor. He checked the f- checked the floor, but he didn't approach a flat. He didn't. Oh, I just burped again. I'm sorry about that. He didn't approach flat one one two at all to check if Marion was okay, even though that's where the screams came from. So we've got two witness statements by two people here who heard blood curdling screams, the sound of someone being murdered, and yet they did nothing about it. That doesn't sound like people looking out for each other, really. Mm, it seems like people today in a big city who would uh oh well the difference today is people will come out with their mobiles wouldn't they they come out with their phone and film it but they wouldn't do anything about it so uh <laughs> so yeah no uh so people heard the sound of marion dying but obviously they did nothing about it and she wasn't discovered until the morning and then all of a sudden they were all surprised they were like oh my god someone was murdered in the flat and it was like yes of course i was and you heard her get murdered oh anyway so those were the extra details to do with that case hope you enjoyed that um it was a this was a really difficult one to write uh normally i can write an episode in about three days this one took about six it's a real pain in the ass this one um because um just just to let you know how i kind of write um it's none of the none of these details are in like a court document None of these details are kind of in a police file. You don't open a police file and there's like a chronology of a person's life, their whole history, and uh, a big list of what their personality traits is. These things just don't appear there. When a lot of these documents, because they want to, like court documents, what they want to prove is whether someone committed a murder or not. Um, A lot of these documents are very factually written. So it says, on this day, at this time, this person saw this person walk in there. They were wearing these clothes. And that's all it is. You get very little about personality. And that's what I that's what I really want is to learn about a person so you can learn about their life and what they're like. And then you can see the murder from their perspective. 
So um, what I have to do is I go through all the documents, all the case files, uh, all the court documents, go through it very... I go through it and then I check, find out what the murder's about and I write all that up and then I go through the case files again very carefully and especially the witness doc, witness uh, reports and I go through that very carefully and I try and find little details which are important. So things like, uh, in this case with Derek Lee Smith, like there were details in there about how he was dressed. So he had a kind of a messy mop of hair on his head. So it's messy hair. Uh, he had thick glasses, Coke bottle bottoms, so um, he had bad eyesight, uh, obviously he wore a hearing aid, he was short, he was, only, he was only about five foot seven, but he walked with long strides, so a lot of this is all telling you about how awkward he is, he's quite a socially awkward person, Do you know, I, we're able to find out what kind of courses he was interested in, so he did uh, accountancy and uh, geography, things like that so it's those kind of details that I kind of root out to try and find to kind of write these episodes but a lot of these files were really difficult it was it was like you, you had to find witness statements and then find people who knew them for years and then and then they go oh um Marion had you know occasionally she'd meet friends with bingo for bingo and you go ah okay bingo that's important it all helps. It's just all these tiny details that help build up a bigger picture of the true person. Because in these files, these things just don't exist. You have to go and write them. Uh, oh, dear. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, what's I, oh, my brain has gone today. Uh, yeah. So, sorry. I, just, I, just, I was going to say something. Then I realised I've already discussed it earlier on. I know. Ah, okay. So, um, but yeah, no. So, so this this um, this uh, script actually took a lot longer to write, and it's because I got halfway through it. Because I think I'd written it from Derek's perspective, and Derek's perspective isn't. I don't know. It just didn't sit right. It just didn't sit right with me at all. Because it's kind of like he doesn't know why he's done it, but he but he's not mad. He's not mad. He's declared insane, but he's not. He's not a madman. Do you know? He's not running around with a knife, going, yeah, "I'm a madman." Stab, stab, stab. Um, and I tried to write it from both their perspectives because it, it is really a fight between a mother and son. But it really didn't come across, and it took me ages to work out that I had to write this episode from Marion's perspective instead. That this really is a story about a a loving mother alone doing her best to try and do the best for her her son and even whether he's disabled or not is is it it kind of go through the story that actually this becomes irrelevant after a while because it's really not about the fact that he does have have disabilities that really is it's just a mother and son that's all it is it's a very normal murder um it's n it kind of I kind of set it up at the start where you think, Oh god, you know, he's been dropped on his head, he's probably gonna go in insane and he's mad and he goes crazy by this point, but he doesn't. Literally it causes him to go deaf. Uh it may have caused him his eyesight problems, but he didn't seem to suffer from headaches or anything like that, or delusions or anything like that. It's literally it ended up being a story about a, a child man boy who basically just wanted more freedom, really. So, uh, quite a normal murder. Something that can happen to anyone. Um, I thought... I'll do a little shout-out at this point. 
I was thinking, do you know what I was thinking this week? Do you know people say, because obviously all the kids are going back to school, I was thinking, people always say, do you know, you can remember good teachers. So I thought I would do um, a little shout out to one of my old school teachers. It was a lady called Mrs. Valerie Perrin. She was my English teacher, and I, I, do you know what? At school, I didn't really enjoy English. I, not not because of her. I just, do you know what? The syllabus around that time was all, oh, do you know the the the, the classic books? I'm using inverted commas. The classic books that everyone hates. Do you know you're forced to listen to Shakespeare and you're forced to, oh, read stuff like Jane Eyre and things like that. Do you know crap where basically people just it's it's like a tussle between whether someone posh is going to marry someone posh and you just don't give a shit, and it's stuff like that. But she was a really good teacher. Uh, she was uh, um, a Cornish lady with uh, dark dark hair and very huge boobs. <laughs> she she was obsessed with telling stories about brunettes, brunette Cornish girls with huge boobs, uh, which I have to say, as a teenage boy, I found that imagery very good. But um, she, the, the reason why I'm flagging her up is because she. Um, with her English lessons, she would always say, like, if we were writing something and writing a story, she would say, okay, never say the word said. Okay, because there's about a thousand different ways that you can say the word, word said. And she's absolutely right. So you don't say John said this. You say John emoted this. John requested. You know, there's a lot of different ways. And I find that I, it's, a st- it's a lesson I still use today in my head that I, I try never to say said. I always try and find other words around it. Hence, in a sentence, you'll notice that sometimes... If if I say, like, I'm on Old Compton Street, and in the next word I have to have the word street in there, I'll try and use the word road or alley or or cut through, or I'll try not to repeat the same word, because it annoys me when people do that, when they, they use the word, like, house three times in the same sentence. Whereas you can, you know, I just find it boring and dull. Um, and you know what? She was a really good teacher as well. I never really liked English at school. I really struggled with it. Um... But she did me the biggest favour ever. I was uh, around that time of school, so I was probably around 13 or 14, you know, the difficult age. Uh, I was struggling. I wasn't really a good student. I was getting D's and E's and U's even. And I was with a bad crowd. And she knew that and she could see that and she could see that I wasn't a bad student. I was just, you know, in with a bad crowd and wasn't really concentrating. I get distracted very easily. Um, So what she did, she did the best thing that I think anyone's ever done for me, really, is she didn't sp- split me up and from the bad people I was with and make an example of me. What she did, she took me to one side. She told me she was going to do this. She said, look, you, I know you're a good lad. And I know I don't want you to feel out of place here. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to move everyone. Uh, so as of next week, I'm going to shift everyone around and you're going to be moved as well. But no one will notice that that is what I've done. And this, I mean... I know this was a thing that she wanted to do because she wanted to split other people up as well. But she sat me with some some other lads who I knew who were really good. They 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 were like A and B students, and over the course of the year, my my grades really improved because I had a chance to sit and sit and concentrate. Uh, so yeah, do you know they do say that uh, you get good teachers and you remember them, and uh, I certainly do. Uh, what? else oh okay yes oh okay uh so blackout ripper i thought i'd uh so i've got some notes here but i've badly written them today um so blackout ripper um 
obviously we did the blackout ripper season end of season one um i did mention in there that he had potentially murdered two other women i put in freedom of information requests to get the those police files uh declassified um unfortunately that has been denied which is a little bit upsetting because i was hoping to get the original files they've only a couple of years left but it's still three or four years uh out of 75 and i was like come on guys but they were like no they haven't given a reason so i can't get access to those police files yet which is really annoying but this is kind of interesting i was contacted uh, a couple of days ago i'm not i can't go into too many details about it at the moment but i was contacted by the blackout ripper's grandson mm, i know this is interesting he he's just found out about it himself he's just found out that he's the blackout ripper's grandson he's contacting me for more information because obviously i did the series and uh i spoke to him on the phone really nice guy he's digging up loads of information at the moment because obviously he knows the families uh relatively well i'm still doing research to find out these new cases so hopefully um i'm gonna meet up with blackout ripper's grandson soon and we'll take it from there so um there will be more information about the blackout ripper do you know what whether i do another murder mile episode or whether i just do a conversation with his grandson just so we can fill in some details that'd be great uh but yeah yeah i thought you might like that um i'm gonna throw this in here now you'll probably think i'm mad for doing this because obviously you know i'm exhausted writing these episodes because it's like 60 70 hours a week writing and producing these episodes and researching on top of that and i am knackered at the moment uh, and running out of time but I'm, I'm thinking about setting up another podcast as well now it won't be a podcast like murder mile which is quite intense and you know uh well researched and well written but it's a real hf a real head fuck um if i'm honest uh, I enjoy it, but it's just really hard work, Murder Mile is. Uh, but also, I don't want to do something which is like Extra Mile, which is kind of, you know, it's kind of free form, but it's unplanned and it's a bit of a mess. I don't want to do something like that. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do uh, a daily podcast. I know you're thinking I'm mad. A daily podcast, but a really short one. So basically three minutes long. Uh, and the idea is that you can listen to it every day. It doesn't have to be a demand. You can binge them if you want to. Or, but you can listen to them while you're eating your toast in the morning. Or having a poo. Or, you know, literally anything. While you're having your, your fag waiting for the bus. Uh, a cigarette for the bus. Obviously, having a fag for a bus probably means something else in America. Um, but, no, um So, it's a short one. But the idea is, basically, uh, loads of people out there love true crime podcasts. Lots of words are used but very few people understand what the words mean uh so what i want to do is like um it's it's basically a daily nugget every day where every day i say okay word of the day is execution and then i tell you where the word execution comes from or what it's about and it's just three minutes so basically you can go into work that day or wherever you are and if it crops up in conversation you can go oh do you know what do you do you know why what the difference between a coffin and the casket is do you know what defenestrate means do you know uh where the origins of the word murder comes from little things like that do you know why why is why do we call it an autopsy what where does the word mortician come from do you know little things like that so um 
I'm going to do that. I'm going to try and kick that off in uh, sometime in October. That will be a, a daily thing. Uh, only be three minutes long, but that's the thing. So um, I'm struggling with the name at the moment. I can't quite work out a name for it. So uh, if you guys fancy, uh, message me, uh, email me, whatever. Um, all is good. This is just between us at the moment. Uh, but I was thinking Desh Deathshinery. A mixture of death and dictionary, but the word dictionary does pe put people off, as does the word lexicon. So it really is kind of a daily dictionary about death and murder. It's not just true crime, it's death, murder, it's true crime. It's kind of everything associated with that. Um, I'm toying with the idea of death nuggets. <laughs> because that's really that's really boils down what it is. It's, a, it's about death, but it's kind of a daily nugget of information. So... Um, that's what I'm kind of think of. So yeah, no. If if you can think of any uh, names that might go with that, let me know. Whiz them over to me. That would be lovely. Uh, yeah, I can't think. I was also thinking murder words because I like the way it phrases murder words. Although the problem is when you use words like murder and true crime in a search engine for podcasts, it kind of gets disappeared because so many people like myself use the word murder and true crime. Uh, so yeah. Um, if you can, if if any of you uh, know of any, uh, can think of any names for that, uh, whiz them over. Yeah. That'd be lovely. Anyway, that is the end of Extra Mile. That was a, a relatively long record. Uh, I'm going to finish my tea. I have got a cherry bakewell right in front of me that looks absolutely delicious. Oh, look at that! I'm going to tuck it. That I, I will demolish that. That is. That wouldn't fit in my mouth, but I will make sure it fits in my mouth in one go. That is delicious. Cool. Thank you so much for listening to uh, Murder Mile and Extra Mile. Thank you so much to everyone who's left reviews on uh, iTunes and all. I I've just seen some uh, lovely ones on Castbox. I, I, I never checked Castbox, but I, I just have. And so thank you to everyone who's posted them on there. Uh, and um, there's another podcast platform. I've forgotten it. Um, but yeah. No, so thank you to everyone. Uh, Th hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll be back next week with more Murder Mile goodness. No song this week. Sorry about that. Have a good day. Be good. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to Quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.